want to start by challenging all the men who are here today to be a part of Momentum Meets with us this next Thursday. Now, that's for all the men in the space, to quote a famous coach of Oklahoma lore, you don't have to be 40 to be a man. Even our young people here, middle school and high school, you qualify. It's been awesome to see our youth join us. This Thursday night, we have a very special Momentum Meets with Jeremy and Caleb Freeman. If you don't know the story, uh, Jeremy's pastor at First Baptist Newcastle. He and I served together in uh, Tulsa, and his dad, Ken Freeman, used to travel and still does. He is an evangelist, used to come to our old church at our old building, and we saw hundreds and thousands of people saved through the years under his ministry. Now Jeremy is a pastor, and his son Caleb uh, should not be walking, certainly shouldn't be preaching. He had a terrible car accident with uh, an 18-wheeler, should have lost his life, and he is going around preaching to others how they can find life. His story is incredible. They've made a book about it. There's a movie that they're already negotiating to try to tell that story, and we get to hear it this Thursday. So get online, register for that. If you need to use a communication card, let's do it. Let's fill this place up Thursday, invite a friend, somebody from school or somebody you know at work. Well, our series is called Alive. As we're studying the uh, epistle called Ephesians, Paul was writing to these new believers to let them know who they were in Christ, that they were alive. And I want you to do something for me is on a scale of 1 to 10, we'll put it up on the screen, I want you to grade your current spiritual health. Now, a 1 would not be so good. That means you feel spiritually dead today. A 10 would be, man, I'm on fire for God like never before. So chart yourself on that line. Where do you fall 1 to 10 in your current spiritual health? As you find your place on that timeline, that's going to change throughout the days you walk on this earth. There are going to be days you feel like you're on fire for God. There are going to be other days you feel like, man, I don't even know if I want to serve God today. Those things happen as you are maturing in your faith. You say, if I'm maturing in my faith, shouldn't I always be growing on the scale? Well, sometimes the enemy brings great challenges that set us back, or we allow things to happen that have us going in the wrong direction. Matter of fact, it's very easy for us to move the wrong direction on that scale and not even know it's happening. I'll show you a picture from 1930. This is a building in Indiana. Uh, it is known as the Indiana Bell Building. It is seven stories tall. It weighed 22 million pounds. Now, how they weighed it, don't ask me. I'm assuming they just calculated uh, the materials that went into building that building, and they know that it, it was huge, and they had a problem. It was purchased by another company, and they wanted to maximize the footprint and the utilization of the real estate and that building. And here's what they did in 1930. That building that you see, they moved that building, the whole building, they moved it 52 feet, and they rotated the building 90 degrees as the people worked in the building. For 34 days, they slowly moved that building 15 inches per hour. Everybody went to work, 600 employees filled that building, and over 34 days, while they were at work without losing utilities, losing the lights, losing the water, they moved that entire building 52 feet and 90 degrees. Well, I use that as an example. If they can do that with a building, 
How much more can Satan do that with your faith? And it happens without, and they said, we didn't even know it was happening. I mean, they did, they were told, but they said, we couldn't even realize the building was moving. And yet it was inch by inch by inch. Well, that can happen for a lot of people in this room. Inch by inch, the enemy may be cooling you down in your faith. He may be moving you in the wrong direction on that timeline. And Paul was writing to these believers so that they might live alive in their faith. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15 before we go to Ephesians. Go to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22. Paul was writing to them and he was getting these Gentiles who had just found faith in Christ to understand what it means to have a living faith. And he told them that they once were just physical beings. They were of Adam. For he says, for as in Adam, all die. What does he mean for an Adam all die? Well, he was saying just as the first man who was born on the planet, Adam, Adam and Eve, just like they experienced death, that if you were born a descendant of Adam, if you're just a physical being, you will die. Every one of us will. But he said, if you are in Christ, the second Adam, if you're in Christ, you will be made what? Alive. You see, in Christ, it's not just becoming a Christian. It's not joining a religion. It's going from death to life. Being dead in our sin, just being physical, and that's all we are, physical, emotional, mental, and, and, and that part of our being. But now in Christ, I am complete. I'm not only physical, I'm not only mental and emotional, I'm now spiritual because the Spirit of God has made me alive just like we were intended to be in the first place. Now, I would tell you that is a great picture you could see today in an OSU fan. I see we have a few in the crowd, just a few, which is a good thing. But I see some OSU fans. Have you noticed these OSU fans this week? They are alive. They're on fire. Man, they are juiced. Can I get a juice from the Cowboys in the audience? Are you juiced, huh? Yeah. I always wonder why they shoot the loser sign. I never got that one, but that's a whole other story. They are completely different than the beginning of the season. Now, at the beginning of the season, they were told, you're dead. Two losses, done. Who's dead now? Sooners are, and Cowboy fans, they are alive. That's a picture of what is true here spiritually in a much more significant way. We were dead in our sin, and guys, we should be way more excited about being alive in Christ than we are for a Big 12 championship. Two Sooner fans, go Sooners, right, Boomer? Well done, I had to get it in somehow, so there we are, all right? So Paul is trying to get these guys to understand, listen, you didn't just get a ticket to heaven. You're not just forgiven, you are so much more than that. So turn to Ephesians chapter 1, let's keep digging in. In Ephesians 1, Paul is helping them to see the lies that they were believing. He was writing a letter to them about their heart relationship with Christ. He was trying to help them understand that they needed to replace the lies that they had believed for the truth that now was theirs. All the way back in the garden, Adam and Eve had the truth. They had everything. They had a walk with God. They had paradise. Everything was good until, until they exchanged the truth for Satan's lie. 
God had told them how they could experience life abundantly and forever. And he said, but if you choose to do it your way, you choose to pursue evil, invite that into the human equation, you eat from that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And they chose the lie. Satan said, you're not going to die. Come on. God's just playing games with you. They chose the lie instead of the truth. And man has been cursed ever since. And the way you reverse the curse is you reverse the equation. Instead of exchanging the truth for a lie, now what we have to do is take the lie and go back to and exchange it for the truth. And so Paul is giving them the truth verse by verse. Let me show you the lies. We know that Satan is the father of all lies. That is his nature. That's what he lives for, and that's what he wants you to live for, his lies. So here are some of the lies we've already exposed. So far through the first four verses... Lie number one, you're a sinner saved by grace. Uh, that's not true. Paul did not write the letter to the sinner saved by grace at Ephesus. He wrote it to the truth is you are now a new creation. You are the saints of God. When I allow myself to live defined by who I was and what I used to be, I find myself doing what I used to do. If I understand I am somebody new in Christ and I have a new purpose, a new life, and a new direction, I am a saint of God, that calls me to a new calling, a new purpose. You are a saint. Lie number two. He wants you to be convinced that you are weak in your faith, that you cannot be faithful to God, that you are not faithful. Matter of fact, you're too weak in your faith. Paul said, I write to the saints in Ephesus, those who are the faithful in Christ. Christ gave you faith. Christ is growing your faith. Let God continue to work himself out as you struggle in your faith, but you are faithful in Christ. The third lie that we've looked at so far is the enemy would love for you to believe that you don't deserve God's love. You don't deserve it. You're not worthy of it. And the truth is, we exchange that lie with this truth, the truth is, we are blessed of God, blessed in Christ. Another lie that he tries to give us is that blessings come from things here on earth. The truth is, we are blessed in heavenly places. He continues to lie to us, and he will try to get you to look in the mirror, and he will lie to you and say, look at you, you are messed up, you are a disappointment to God. You ever heard that one? You ever struggle with that? A spirit of guilt? Man, there, I blew it again. I'm just one big disappointment to God. No, the truth is this. The truth is he has made you to be, listen to this, holy and blameless. The enemy loves to cripple us with his lies, but it is the truth that sets us free. Another lie that the enemy brings is you need to redeem yourself. Can't imagine how many times I've struggled with this, and I know you have as well. You do mess up. You fall short of God's glory, and immediately this spirit of guilt comes over you, and you say, well, i got to redeem myself. I need to act better tomorrow than I did today. I need to fix it. Paul tells us the truth is this. He has redeemed us. He has bought us back, and he redeemed us with his blood. So there's a lot of lies in four verses that have been exposed. And he continues, take a look, go back to Ephesians 1 now, go down to verse 9. Good news is we're going to cover more than one verse today, if you can stay with me. Let's see. Go to verse 9. So God made him 
He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention which he purposed in him. As he begins right in verse 9, he says there's a mystery. Now, most mysteries, if something is a mystery, it's mean it's something we can't figure out. It's mysterious. It's a mystery. And we're going to break that open in a minute. But he says, he has made it known to us by the kind intention of his will, the purposed plan in him. That's speaking of what God predetermined before you were ever born. God predetermined the way for you to be saved. Before the foundation of the world, Christ was slain. A mystery. Why did he die for us? Why did God love us in that way? And why did God make a way for me to be right with him through Christ and not my works? Verse 10. He did this with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is, the summing up of all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Now there's a whole bunch of verbiage there. Makes you wish we would have gone one verse at a time, doesn't it? There's a lot to take in there. There's a lot to soak in. You just went to seminary. That's a seminary professor, Paul, unpacking a whole lot of truth. So let's pick it apart. First of all, He reminds us it is that predetermined plan of salvation that it would be in and through Christ. He speaks of that mystery. Now, that mystery that has been revealed, that's what that Greek word actually means. It means that which was mysterious to us, what we couldn't understand, what we didn't know, it speaks of a revealed knowledge. What was once covered up, what was once not able to be understood, has now been revealed. What was revealed? The gospel through Christ. The fact that all could be saved. Not just the Jew, but also the Gentile. Scripture says that we can't see that when we're first born. That the God of this world is blinding us. It's called a veil. Uh, That doesn't happen as often anymore. Uh, as uh, brides come down the aisle, they still sometimes wear a veil. But back in the day, it used to be as they first came down, they would wear a veil. You couldn't see their face because they wanted to lift that veil and see the face of their bride for the first time. That veil was a covering. And what Scripture says is our eyes are covered to the reality of this mystery. God so loved me, he died for me. That doesn't make sense. That's a mystery. But the Holy Spirit reveals that to us, and what we once were blinded to is we hear the Word of God preached, that two-edged sword penetrates the veil, and we now can see our sin and our Savior. That there's only one way, one truth, and one life, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the other part of that mystery is that mystery is all can be saved. He died for the sins of the world, not the sins of the Jews. He died for you and he died for me. That blows me away. And it blew them away. All their lives they'd heard that God was only the God of the Jews. They had to make up their own gods. But now they find that God loved them, these Gentiles. Verse 13. Take a look back at 13 now. He goes on from that point. Now that he has reminded them that they have been saved, look at the reality of our salvation. Verse 13. 
So in him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So he's talking to believers. He's talking about people who've heard the gospel and responded to it, and now they had their salvation in Christ. Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. I want us to camp in verse 13 for just a little bit. And I want to talk about what Paul was teaching them that was crystal clear in their day, not so clear in our day. He says, yes, you were saved when you believed, but there there is a bigger picture to this salvation that you now have. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, what does that mean? When you think of being sealed, maybe you already are thinking about Ziploc bags. Anybody think about Ziploc baggies all of a sudden? When I grew up, you guys don't get it, the spoiled generation. You get these cool engineered Ziploc bags that you cannot take apart your own self, all right? They zip shut, nothing gets in. When we went to school, we had these so-called baggies that they put our little peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in, and they mixed it with our Kool-Aid, and all of our Kool-Aid seeped into our sandwiches and sogged them all up, and it was nasty by lunchtime. But now they're Ziploc bags. Nothing gets through them. Indestructible, sealed. Well, that's a nice picture, but that's not the picture. They didn't have Ziploc bags in Paul's day, right? So that's not what he was talking about. You have to be very careful when you're studying Scripture that you don't look at it through your Western context, the lens of our culture, or you'll draw the wrong conclusions or the wrong pictures. So what does he mean you were sealed in him? Well, you have to go back and you have to study the, the context and the culture of that day. And that day, a seal was a powerful, powerful part of society. A seal is how they did business. A seal is how they showed ownership. A seal was, and you've seen it in old movies, maybe you haven't, y'all haven't seen old movies, some of us have, uh, where they would take a letter and they would fold, they would write with a pen or a pencil and they would communicate to somebody and then they would fold it shut and to make sure it was secure, They would take hot wax, they would dump it right on top of that edge of the seal, it would seal the letter shut, and then they would take their ring, their signet ring, and they would stick it into that wax and leave a mark. It was the family crest, it was the signature of the head of the estate, and they would seal that letter. As that letter was delivered, You could tell if anybody had tampered with it or if it had come from the originator and never been messed with. So that seal was a very specific picture to the audience of that day. What Paul was saying is not only have you been saved, but God the Heavenly Father has put his royal stamp on you. You are marked. You are marked with the seal of God over you, if you know Christ. Now, what does that mean to you and me? What's the big deal about being sealed in the Holy Spirit? Well, God put on you not just salvation, but he also put his Holy Spirit in you. And that is the seal, that is the mark, that is the signature that you are a child of God, sealed by him. There were two purposes for the seal that we'll come back and we'll talk about. It validates who owns that document, who was initiating what is written in that document. It showed ownership. 
The Bible says when we become a Christian, we're born again. We become a new person. We now have a new father, a heavenly father. We now have a new nature. We once just desired sin. Now while we may struggle in sin, we now have a desire for the holiness of God and God's holy will. We have a new nature. But we also have a new status. We're now a child of God. I once was a child of Fran and King Hulse. I'm now a child of the heavenly king, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm his child. And in that, his mark is on me. What is his is mine. And I am a part of that royal estate. Now, I told you there are two realities of the seal back in that day. The first one was uh, to, to give the signature to show who was the owner of the document, if you will. It showed that it was the originator's seal. It tied back to an original mark. Once you become a Christian, God's, the Heavenly Father's seal is placed on you. Go to Romans 8 and verse 9. Romans 8 and verse 9, Paul continued to talk about this seal of the Holy Spirit. In Romans 8 and 9, it says this, Now you are no longer in the flesh, but you are in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to God. Notice he doesn't say he who's a member of a church or he who's been baptized. It says he who has the Holy Spirit. That is the sign, that is the signet ring that you are now a new person and you belong to God. Second reason a signet ring was used, whenever they would dip that signet ring into the wax, it was a mark of ownership. Now, let's see that in Scripture. Go over to 2 Timothy. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal, there's the word again, having this seal that the Lord knows those who are his. A picture of the seal is a mark of ownership. Again, if you would have received a letter in that day, you would look at the letter, and it didn't have return addresses like ours to know who the letter came from. You looked at the seal, and by the seal, you could tell who's the letter was from. It was designated by the mark, the crest, the signet ring. Now, this generation has incredible blessings, a, a totally different generation than what me and my, my peers grew up in. But I have one thing they don't have. John Wayne movies. Y'all even know who John Wayne is? You know John Wayne, the Duke? Go back and look it up. Wikipedia that. Go out and check some old John Wayne movies. Now, here's the deal. One thing we can get, if you ever go back and watch an old Western, they always had their cattle, right? Now, how did you know who was John Wayne's cow and whose cow belonged to somebody else? They were branded. They had a mark. They, you could look at that cow and you could tell by the brand on the cow who it belonged to. And then we had... Rustlers. You know what rustlers are? They're people who don't own the cows that take your cows. And they know that they're going to be exposed for robbing you of your cow. So what they do is they try to take your brand and they put another brand on top of it and they try to make it look like their brand. That's what Satan tries to do every day. He tries to rebrand us. He tries to put his signet on us and say, no, 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 you're mine. 
No, 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 no. Do this. No, no, no. I'm going to put my mark on you. You belong to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are holy and you are blameless. Don't let the enemy lie to you and don't let him steal, kill, and destroy. Don't let him rustle your faith. Don't let him deceive you. Don't let him move you down that spectrum from a 10 down to a 1. That's what he tries to do as the father of all lies. But the beautiful thing for those who are in Christ, God has put his mark on you. And I want, you to, show, I want to show you from Scripture how significant it is. Go to John chapter 10, one of my favorite passages of Scripture. When I got saved, I couldn't believe it. It was a mystery. How could God love me? How could God save me? But I placed my faith in the gospel and in Christ. I got saved. And for the next two, three years, Satan kept messing with my head. Matter of fact, that's why if you look at the armor of God, God gives us the helmet of what? Salvation. Because the attack on our mind is this. You're not saved. You can't still be saved. Oh, you've lost what you once had. The attack of our mind, we all struggle to doubt our salvation. And I had to study to be set free from the lies of the enemy. And here's the truth. Look at the truth. This is what God took me back to in 1983. John chapter 10. Yeah, that's when we had black and white John Wayne movies. John chapter 10, verse 27. Look at it. He says, my sheep, hear my voice. Before we were a new creation in Christ, we were goats, if you will. We were critters that lived for our flesh. But then in Christ, we become a new creation. We're now called the sheep of God, and he is our shepherd. And he says, my sheep, that speaks of somebody who has a relationship with Christ. They hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish unless they quit going to church. Unless they quit tithing. Unless they, is there an unless they? It says they will never perish. That's the truth. Don't let the enemy try to bring a lie to your brain that says you'll never perish unless, and he fills in a blank, and the blank in there. God has paid the price. God has redeemed us. He has paid the full price. He paid it with his own blood, and he sealed his children in that blood with his signet ring. We belong to him. And look at the reality of this. No one can take you out of his hand. That's why you'll never perish, because we belong to him. He purchased us, he owns us, and his mark is on us. We are branded in the blood of Christ, and nothing can change that. Verse 29, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This picture of the seal, lose the Ziploc bag. See the better picture. God's brand is on me. And when I take my last breath, the accuser of the brethren, Satan, ain't going to step into that holy courtroom before the holy judge of the universe and say, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't let him into heaven. You can't let him into your presence. I have evidence. No, you don't. No, no, no. Look, there were times, look, Father, there were times he looked more like me than he looked like you. I could say guilty as charged. 
But what is true is I stand in that holy courtroom. God isn't looking at my resume. You know what he's looking for? The mark. I belong to him. And the enemy can't steal that. He can't rebrand me. He can't take that away. I am a child of God. I have that confidence today. Do you? You should. And you can. If you know who you are in Christ. Now here's here's the power of that seal. You remember when Jesus went to the cross? The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the Jews? No, the sins of the world. As he hung on that cross, he died. Not just because he was impaled with nails in his hands and in his feet and a spear to the side, but because he died for you and he died for me. And after he took his last breath, the Jews immediately went to the Roman government and all of a sudden were buddy-buddy. And they said, listen, this guy declared that three days later he was going to raise from the dead. We know that's not true, but we don't want his disciples to come steal the body, so we need you to guard the tomb. You go back and you read, it's interesting. What did the Romans do? The Romans, when that stone was rolled into place, Jesus' dead body was laid. You know what they did? They put a seal on the tomb. Not a Ziploc bag, a seal. A declaration. This is the Roman government property. And that seal showed that he was locked and he was owned by that grave. But three days later, the Lord God Almighty resurrected the Son. He rose from the dead. Amen? He did what he said he was going to do. And the next thing he did, you know what he did? He broke that Roman seal. He broke it wide open. And he made it possible that the only seal you need to worry about, the seal of the Heavenly Father, could be placed on you. You could have life everlasting forevermore. And it's accomplished through the blood of Jesus Christ. He broke the seal that he might be able to put his seal on you. Do you have that seal? We have one more verse to close. Well, we have... A couple verses, but one more verse to look at in Ephesians 1. Don't get too excited. Ephesians 1, 14, quickly, look at it. He goes on to say this, so we have been sealed. His mark is on us. Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. What did I just say? Anybody know? Those are a bunch of big, hairy words again. What's he saying? Let's break it down very quickly. That word pledge means a deposit. That an initial payment, a down payment was made, and that kind of pledge was not just hoping to pay it off, but it was a pledge of earnest money saying, it will be paid in full. You said, well, I thought you said Jesus paid it full on the cross. Yes, he did. He paid the penalty, but he is still working in our lives. He is still working out our salvation. That's called sanctification. And what Paul was saying here to them is this, the Lord has put in you that first installment of what will be. You see, we aren't perfect yet, but a day is coming when we will be perfect, when we will be glorified as he is glorified, just like they were originally created in the garden. Let me show it to you very quickly. You got to go here. Romans 8, look at Romans 8, 16 and 17. We're almost done. For the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit 
that we are the children of God. And if we are children, we are heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. You see, what God accomplished at the cross, he accomplished my redemption. And as I receive Christ, I have a down payment. The Holy Spirit lives in me, and the Holy Spirit is working in me, and he is perfecting me into his image until one day when I take my last breath, I will be perfect then. The Bible says we will take on a glorified body, and we will be returned to a glorified state with no more sin, no more struggle, no more flesh. That day is coming, but until then, his seal is on you. His pledge is in you, the Holy Spirit, and he will perfect the work he has done in you. So can you lose your salvation? Can you get rebranded? Can you lose the brand? Can Satan come in and put his signet on top of God's signet? Let me show you one last verse, and we are done. 1 Peter chapter 1. Everybody needs to see it. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. You see, the enemy wants you to believe, hey, 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 I know you think you're saved, but you can lose it. Matter of fact, you just messed it up and you no longer have, you're no longer a child of God. He'll try to convince you of that. He tried to do that with Peter. Peter, you've lost it. You denied Christ three times. You've disappointed him. You're not a saint. You're a sinner. He repented. Because he fell short of God's glory, and God continued a great work in Peter's life. And listen to what the Holy Spirit said through Peter, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his mercy, not your works, his mercy, has caused us to be born again to living hope. This hope came through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance. Watch this. An inheritance which is imperishable. What does that mean? It cannot perish. It cannot fade away. It will not go away. Undefiled. It will not fade away. It is reserved for you in heaven. Peter said, guys, what God has done for you is not only a miracle and a mystery. It is a gift of grace and it is eternal. It will never perish. You cannot lose it. And you say, yeah, but I know a person. I've heard this before. We had a deacon in our church, and man, he was a leader in our church, and now he lives like hell on earth. So? So that proves you can lose it. How do you know he had it in the first place? How do you know he wasn't like Judas, who just showed up and looked like a disciple, but had never been changed? We don't know that. Don't build your theology from experience. Build it from Scripture. And here's what Scripture says. Those who are in Christ... They are saved, and they have an inheritance which is imperishable. It cannot be stolen. It can't be rebranded. It cannot fade away. It's permanent. How do I know that? Verse 5. Because God is the one who protects it. By the power of God that we're protected through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed. If you believe you can lose your salvation, then you believe you can lose what belongs to God. Wrong. He cannot lose it. Number two, if you believe you can lose your salvation, you believe that God is not able to protect what he has given you. You want to say that to God? God, you can't take care of it. You can't protect it. You can't finish it. I don't place my faith in me. I place my faith in him. 
And in Christ, we are sealed. In Christ, we are safe and we're secure.